Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. As President Macron climbs down on his deadline to punish Britain over fishing licences, David Scullion asks Patrick O'Flynn whether Britain is getting the better of the French or if the post-Brexit deal has left UK fishermen high and dry. The issue of fishing has been a bone of contention between the UK and the EU since the UK joined the European Economic Community in 1973 and also joined the Common Fisheries policy. But recently, this has uh, flared up again. A British trawler was seized by France because it was not on an EU list of vessels that had licences to fish in French waters. Now, the British government said the trawler had been granted a licence, but didn't know why it wasn't on the list. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Patrick O'Flynn, who is the former political editor at the Daily Express. Is that, so I've got that right, Patrick. Yes, that's right. Yes, uh, and has been a UKIP and later Brexit party, and then also later, uh, if I get this right, uh, SDP MEP in the European Parliament. And uh, he's. Yeah, I, I won't. I wasn't in the Brexit party, as it happens, although I, I was a firm supporter of them in those uh, 2019 uh, elections. Apologies, apologies for that. And he has written an article for The Critic recently about this, this fishing war. Patrick, just explain briefly you know, what, what's going on. Well, my interest really is the, the uh, fact that most of our broadcast media and a big chunk of our, our written media too are just quite incapable of seeing anything through any lens other than Britain is isolated, Britain is a renegade, Britain is losing. Because on this uh, fishing dispute with France, uh, as the Foreign Secretary Liz Trust made clear, uh, we have been uh, enforcing the, the trade and cooperation agreement uh, the, the clauses with regard to fishing exactly as envisaged. And there are just a couple, a few dozen French trawlers were not able to show they had fished uh, the relevant British waters before and hadn't yet had licenses come through. Uh, now, it, it really wasn't uh, Britain that was behaving in some kind of reckless manner. Uh, the idea as well that we are isolated, that fell down as well, because the French government uh, invited the European Commission and all other EU countries uh, to gang up with them to bully Britain, uh, with that, that famous line from Jean Castex, the French prime minister, saying that they needed to show that leaving the union uh, was worse than still uh, being in it. That, that support didn't follow from the commission, uh, because an independent uh, legal review process would have shown that in fact, uh, not just France, therefore, but the whole EU would have been acting uh, against the, the trade and cooperation agreement. So what's happened is that the, the French bluster uh, has collapsed. Uh, and uh, we're, we're as you were with the British position having been vindicated, but you, you would be really, really struggle to, to find that reflected in any, any British broadcast media, particularly television news bulletins. So uh, President Macron gave a, a deadline, didn't he, to for the, um, the the British to start giving out these licenses again? So do you see that as a? Then the deadline fell, and he said, "Look, negotiations are carrying on," and it was a bit of a, a kind of he got egg on his face over it. And, and do you see that as just a failure of him to get any kind of allies in the EU? 
Uh, I see, you know, him getting egg on his face every week at the moment. And really, this can be traced back to uh, a massive strop uh, over the AUKUS uh, deal, which was a, a diplomatic disaster and humiliation uh, for France with, with economic aspects as well as regards the the, the cancelled uh, submarine contract, the huge contract that they lost. Uh, and we're seeing at the various summits, Joe Biden having to uh, smooth the, the, the ruffled Macron feathers uh, too, probably a cause of some mirth among the, the, the US delegation uh, and, and tell Macron you are our oldest ally. Uh, but he's, you know, he's not he's not reversing the AUKUS uh, agreement. And um, I think there's high anxiety within France uh, that they are uh, the, the country with kind of global reach pretensions, uh, which are falling, which is falling back. And the United Kingdom outside the EU, you know, it, it is a key part of, the, of this new, very important defence agreement in the Pacific, is almost uh, signing off on important bilateral trade deals with big economies like India and Australia, uh, and is now even in, in the recent budget beginning to use the freedoms of Brexit to enact some some tax reforms that it couldn't have done uh, inside the EU. So uh, hence the nervousness in France, I think, about um, it not being the case that being outside the union uh, is seen to be worse than being in it. But yeah, this really this wasn't supposed to happen, was it? From what a lot of commentators said, certainly the the AUKUS deal. Um, you know, we were told that that it, that it would be Britain alone, it would be the EU, uh, which would be united on things and be able to strike relationships with America. And certainly with Joe Biden as as president, we were told that Britain would be isolated. You know, why is there such a, a disconnect between what seems to have happened, which is, you know, Britain is striking its own agreements, and what we were told would happen by a lot of the commentariat? Well, I think uh, the, the crux of it is that the EU just isn't that big a deal uh, it, on a global level, as everyone presumed that it was. I mean, it's it's losing year after year uh, uh, tra- international trade share. When you look at its, its, its share of global trade, it's certainly losing ground as its percentage of global uh, GDP. Uh, it's an organization in long-term decline. Uh, people saw the Afghanistan debacle as principally a disaster for Joe Biden, but there was a very strong case for saying that actually uh, if the main uh, EU countries had pulled their weight in terms of defence spending and commitments, that this sort of fabled idea of, of a longer-term presence in Afghanistan uh, allowing it to mature and moderate, uh, there could have been some road to run uh, had the main EU countries done that. But as we know, they skimp on defence. They don't pay their fair share uh, into NATO. Uh, and that underlying weakness uh, has has reduced their footprint in, in the world. And so a new Pacific partnership is uh, agreed and Britain is part of it. And the EU isn't. I think on, on a kind of geopolitical uh, scale, the EU doesn't matter very much. And 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 the freedom of movement that the UK has got, as well as our, our kind of more multipolar connections, whether it be to the Anglosphere, uh, the USA, uh, the Commonwealth, uh, is beginning to bear fruit. Um, well, you say the EU doesn't matter very much, but uh, I mean, I'm looking at a map here of um, of, of- 
of British waters and uh, the, you know, the waters around Britain. Um, and uh, the EU seems to have got a really good deal from this fishing, uh, this, this fishing agreement, you know, before uh, the EU was fishing about 60% of taking, catching about 60% from our, um, our waters. And it, it doesn't seem like it's uh, been reduced very much. You know, why did do you think, you know, uh, Brexiteers said a lot about fishing and fishing was a, definitely a big take back control thing. Why is the, uh, why does it seem that we're, we're kind of granting so many licenses to French boats and, and other European boats? Well, I think that has to be seen in the, in the overall context of the disastrous mismanagement of the Brexit process by the Conservative Party, uh, particularly the government of Theresa May. Uh, which meant that by the time actual Brexiteers uh, got in charge, a lot of leverage had been given away. And so uh, you saw, you know, two very disappointing uh, major factors in our, in our departure from the EU, uh, and one of which was uh, the state that Northern Ireland was left in. And the other, I think, was uh, the really quite modest uh, incremental uplift in uh, catches available to our own uh, fishing fleet. However, with with the on the fishing aspect, I think that was a medium term, albeit quite severe disappointment. And we're we're moving, you know, to a roughly twenty five percent more fish for Brits. But we're moving towards twenty twenty six when those uh, kind of uh, intermediate undertakings fall away, and we move to a system of. Of, uh, of of no commitment to allow EU trawlers to fish in British waters, but annual negotiations, which will obviously have to take into account uh, the negotiating leverage of the EU as regards where British trawlers want to land and sell their own uh, fish, and as regards the EU's ability to take other reprisals if, if we just attempt a complete lockout. But nonetheless, I would expect over the long term, uh, the, the, the percentage of fish caught in British waters that go to British trawlers is going to increase. And I think that's the background uh, to France's uh, sabre rattling now and nervousness about it all now. So this is not, the, the, the agreement on fishing is not something you're happy with or were happy with at the time. Uh, no, I think it was disappointing. Uh, the people I talked to in in sort of uh, lobbying groups for for the, the British trawler industry uh, were disappointed, aggrieved, and I, I don't just think they they were sort of making it up in order to kind of always have something to to bellyache on. I think they genuinely were, and I heard uh, actually uh, from political sources that some ministers. Uh, in the government were very disappointed with that aspect uh, as well and a bit kind of downcast about it. Uh, however, the, the the sort of 20, the rundown to 2026 is quite important. You know, there was a date there uh, by which we could expect to um, assert more leverage. And, you know, 2026 might have seemed a long way off uh, even, you know, a year or so ago. Uh, or, or a little longer when 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 the uh, agreements were were being reached, but you know it comes around pretty quick. Um, and you know another year from now, it's going to be staring the whole EU uh, in the face as regards to uh, maritime relations. So I think uh, that damage uh, can be repaired, or that that kind of undershoot of expectations uh, can be repaired. 
You're imagining, I mean, I guess you've alluded to it slightly, but the, 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 I guess a cynic would say, you know, 2026, Britain technically can take back full control of its its uh, exclusive economic zone of, of waters. But, you know, the, oh. the trade concerns will, will mean that that won't happen. France will will do some more say rattling or the EU will say, oh, well, you you do want to uh, you do want to um, sell goods to to the EU, don't you? And and it won't happen. I mean, when you look at the uh, the situation with Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has been enforced for almost a year now, and the British mm. government has been making noises about it almost the entire time, uh, and has uh, seemingly done very little to uh, change it. Do you realistically think that that Britain will take back a significantly larger proportion of its fishing stocks? Uh, yes, I do. Um, again, it won't be uh, enough for the purists. But if you if you think about the the fishing fishing as a political issue, I mean the kind of FT type technocrats always go on about how titchy it is. Well, it, perhaps it wouldn't be so titchy in the overall economic scheme of things had we not uh, turned our our fisheries into a common European resource in the first place. But that doesn't really get to the heart of it. There is a strong emotional uh, appeal uh, about the idea of the British trawler industry, uh, you know, sorry, this, this is a, a mangled metaphor, but being sold down the river by Edward Heath. And when I used to talk at public meetings as an MEP, uh, that would really get the blood running and not just in coastal communities, uh, you know, it, 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 right across uh, the country. So there's a big emotional appeal there. There's also an interesting factor is that a lot of the uh, fishing communities are in marginal seats or or previously marginal seats, whether you're talking, you know, uh, about some of the Kent seats uh, like like the, the Thanet North, for instance. You've got the East Coast, low, the lowest off seat, which is Waveney, uh, Great Yarmouth. If you look at Grimsby, uh, you know, you, you can go all, all around the coast and there's a remarkable number of seats uh, which were held by Tony Blair's Labour Party when Labour was in its pomp, some of them still quite marginal. So I do actually see, uh, you know, that as is almost part of the red wall. Uh, and I think there's a cultural issue there for the government, which means that it will push a bit harder uh, for concessions and progress uh, in those uh, areas, in those communities, than a sort of S uh, GDP bean counting exercise might indicate. Mm. Do you think that's, uh, I mean, you know, the Conservatives have an 80 seat majority and, uh, uh, you know, do you think that that, that will really become a, a big uh, uh, a big factor when it comes to the next election? Do you think they'll think, that, do you think they'll suddenly wake up and think, oh, we do need to, um, we, we do need to sort out fishing and take, uh, you know, take what we're, we're owed. I think they're going to have to show that they're they're on track as part of the wider red wall exercise to revive uh, those coastal towns, uh, and that uh, a kind of increase in in the employment related to the to the fishing industry uh, would be one way of doing that, and probably the most culturally potent way of doing that, the idea of a revival of such an important part of the heritage of those communities. So uh, I won't want to oversell this as, as saying that, that Boris Johnson, you know, will compromise uh, the future, say, of, of, the, of the British car manufacturing sector or anything like that. Uh, but I do think you can expect him to be a little more terrier-like 
uh, about that. And I do think with the leverage we've got with that um, 2026 uh, date looming will already be starting to come into play by the time of the next election. Uh, the referendum was uh, five or so years ago, uh, and you, you mentioned Ted Heath. You mentioned that you used to mention uh, Ted Heath when you were when you were uh, making speeches. There are a whole uh, whole voting people now who who uh, don't really uh, have much memory of the referendum. Certainly weren't old enough to vote. Just explain uh, briefly, if you would, what 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 was Ted Heath? You know, what was the situation with him him selling fishing? Uh, well. Um, Ted Heath uh, took us uh, into what is now the European Union uh, without a referendum, right? He he stole the status quo from an independent Britain and, and locked us in. And in his desperation uh, to do the deal to, to get us into uh, what was the European Economic Community, uh, he completely, completely uh, ratted on our maritime sovereignty uh, and t- agreed to turn our Uh, fishing waters into a common European resource. Uh, And I think everyone in the Conservative government at that stage knew uh, that that was a pretty desperate and cynical measure. But he was so determined for for geopolitical reasons to get us in and for his own idealism uh, that uh, he did that to our fishing stocks. Uh, And hence, Ted Heath is remembered you know, uh, it, it up there in the demonology of political figures uh, among people of a certain age, and particularly in fishing towns, though though not only in fishing towns. And that's a legacy uh, that the Conservative Party, I think, finds it difficult to shake off, uh, particularly if it wants to be seen as uh, the kind of keeper of the Brexit flame. Ted Heath is remembered... Uh... Perhaps even more strongly in Scotland, though, isn't he? I mean, that's that's uh, potentially a, a big uh, um, uh, driver towards Scottish independence. Was the idea that this uh, this Conservative Prime Minister sold um, Scotland's fishing waters? Uh, yeah, I think it, it, it it's certainly uh, true in Scotland as well. Although that you know, then the, the, they have uh, a fairly long list of grievances, including being the sort of test bed experimental uh, ground for various Thatcherite uh, innovations, including uh, the poll tax. So um, uh, I think it kind of gets uh, gets mixed in with a with a lot of grievances uh, against. Uh, the English establishment and particularly the Conservative Party. But yes, absolutely, fishing is is um, uh, a rather bigger share of the Scottish economy than the English economy. Uh, uh, and there are those same cultural aspects of resentment, but but kind of laced in with, uh, with the general Scottish nationalist movement too. Mm. And just finally then, some of these French threats that, uh, that Macron issued, uh, so limiting access to French ports for British vessels, uh, increasing security oh. checks on British vessels and trucks, uh, which would uh, disrupt trade. And also, I think this one was was most striking to me, cutting the supply of electricity to Jersey or changing tariffs on it. Uh, what should a British government be doing uh, uh, long term or maybe even short term uh, when issued with, with such threats? And, and should that change our relationship with France? Well, I think inevitably it is changing our relationship with France. Um, on the on the trade threat, I think um, there's already moves to um, 
increase our capacity to export via uh, ports in Belgium and the Netherlands. And that would be um, quite an economic disaster uh, for parts of France, particularly the region around uh, Calais. Uh, but, you know, strategically, that's a smart thing uh, to be doing. Um, again, uh, the, 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 the thing that Britain needs to work at is um, advancing the notion, which I think is now quite widely appreciated, that it's not in the interest of the other EU nations to get caught up uh, in French sabre rattling, which is a lot to do with um, the French presidential elections coming at a time when French prestige is generally uh, in the doldrums and when Macron faces a, a threat from the nationalist uh, right. It's not really uh, something you would expect, uh, you know, Poland or Hungary or Italy even uh, to want to compromise a very major export market and uh, the most important non-EU European neighbour, the relationship with that country uh, over such a, a French agenda. And I think there was certainly a lot of that around uh, earlier in the week uh, when Castex and Macron were trying to rope everyone in to this French agenda to beat up the Brits. So I, th I think that's already starting to happen. Um, I know I said finally, but I do have one final question, which is, uh, you know, you, you've been following this for a long time and, uh, you know, uh, working for the Express and then later um, uh, as a politician, you know, seeing Merkel leaving uh, uh, as kind of, Queen of Europe, where do you see the future of the European Union over the next kind of 10 years? Well, I think if Macron can get re-elected, um, uh, obviously he becomes the most high profile um, leader of an important EU country. Um, I do think there'll be a big push towards some kind of defence identity EU-wide. Uh, that probably can be managed without NATO uh, completely kind of um, kicking up rough. Uh, but that will involve, you know, the EU countries spending more money on defence too. It will certainly be taken by British Eurosceptics as a sign that we were right all along about plans for a, uh, a European army. Uh, I think, you know, there's still enormous political will among the EU establishment um, to forward, to push forward with integration. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll see sort of more uh, kind of monetary uh, and fiscal uh, restraints and integration measures to, to try and make the euro uh, work a bit better. Um, I think the interesting thing to look at is the Visegrad uh, countries, you know, the disputes with Poland and Hungary, uh, uh, particularly Poland over, you know, what is to them apparently a shocking uh, revelation that European Union law supersedes national law. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, while Poland is still a big net recipient of EU uh, funding for various projects, I suppose, actually, the uh, Poland leaving is, is unlikely. But I think uh, in the longer term, uh, we are moving towards there being an unbridgeable divide between between core EU, you know, and uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and that's something to look for. But I think all these things happen a lot slower than people suppose. So, so I don't see in ten years' time that it's likely that that another country will have left the EU. 
uh, 25 years time, you know, things might look completely different. But I think there's enormous political will still there to hold it together and to keep integrating. And on a 10 year time frame, uh, you know, I suspect that there'll probably be more countries in the EU in 10 years uh, than there are today rather than fewer. Mm. Well, Patrick O'Flynn, thank you so much for coming on the Critic Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.